and we'll sing together as we gather back for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. The Canadian rock band, Five Man Electrical Band, 
hit it big when they least expected it. Lee Emerson, who was the lead singer of a group that some of you may know years ago, saw four signs in his hometown, and all four of those signs evoked a response from him, made him angry, and so he put them in lyrics of a song that they put on the B-side of the album. Now, baby boomers and uh, millennials know what a B-side is, but all you Gen Xers, a B-side is when you flip over the vinyl record, and it's on the back. They didn't think it was a very big deal. The song was called Signs. And the signs, lyrics, became an anthem for teenagers in the 1970s. You know the song, some of you. And the sign said, long-haired, freaky people need not apply. This is going to sound great on the tape. <laughs> so I tucked up my hair up under my hat, and I went in to ask him why. He said, you look like a fine, upstanding young man. I'm sure you'll do. And so I took off my hat and said, imagine that, huh, me working for you. Oh, signs, signs, everywhere a sign. Blocking out the scenery, breaking my mind. Do this, don't do that, can't you read the sign? And so these guys saw the second sign, right? This one was outside of a house. And he said, and the sign said, anybody caught trespassing would be shot on sight. I can't sing the melody at this point. So I jumped the fence and I yelled at the house, hey, what gives you the right to put up a sign to keep me out or to keep Mother Nature in? If God were here, he'd tell you to your face, man, you're some kind of sinner. Remember the song? Sign, sign, everywhere a sign, blocking out the scenery, breaking my mind. Do this, don't do that, can't you read the sign? And then it goes on. He goes to an exclusive club. And it says, hey, you, mister, can't you read? you got to have a shirt and a tie to get a seat. You can't even watch. No, you can't eat. You ain't supposed to be here. And the sign said, you got to have a membership card to get inside. Remember the song? Listen, it was a B-side song. It wasn't a big deal. But this song became an anthem for teenagers all across America and Canada in the 1970s. The signs, these restrictive public rules about how you can and you cannot act. And I think if the Apostle John had lived in the 1970s, I think he would have listened to the five-man electrical band. Because the Apostle John structures the middle section of his gospel in chapter 2 to chapter 12 by signs that he saw that also evoked a reaction from him and the Jews and therefore us. In John 2.11, for example, if you lower your eyes to the text, it says, this was the first of the signs. What are these signs? not placards around our hometown. These signs are seven illustrations that Jesus gives us of what he meant back in verses, one, uh, verses 50 and 51 of chapter 1 when he told Nathaniel, Nathaniel, listen, do you think it's a big deal that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see even greater things than these. 
And then John pulls out seven miracles in the middle of his gospel to show us the signs of Jesus' unrivaled deity. And these seven signs evoked a reaction primarily from the religious crowds of the day. And they're also meant to evoke a reaction from us. Jesus gives Nathaniel and us seven glimpses, miracles, seven signs of how he is the bridge that pulls heaven and earth to spark together when he displays his glory for all to see. What are the signs? Sign one is in chapter two. It's changing the water into, the, into wine at the wedding of Cana. Sign two is in chapter four, whenever Jesus heals the royal official's son at Capernaum. Sign three is when he heals the paralytic at Bethesda in chapter five. Sign four is when he uh, feeds the 5,000 in chapter six. Sign five is when Jesus walks on the water later in chapter six. Sign six is whenever Jesus um, uh, heals the man who's been lame and, and blind from birth um, later in chapter nine. And then Jesus goes on in sign seven to raise his friend Lazarus in chapter 11. I can't get too far ahead of where we are in John, but to suffice it to say that these signs are seen by scholars and commentators upon the gospel of John as ways that Jesus is trying to show us that he is recreating the world in our midst. That he is breaking down the dividing line between heaven and earth. He, and he is illustrating what we learned last week, that he is the ladder. He is the bridge that pulls heaven to earth now. And for those of us who live on earth now, who have faith in him, he pulls us up into heaven and gives us an identity that is alien to us, that is foreign to us in our natural state. And he gives us a new heart to help us recognize that we live now already and yet not yet fully saved as his people. So what I want to do is I want to show you what Jesus meant when he said to Nathaniel, I'll show you even greater things than these through these seven signs over the next series of months that we're in this thing together. But we have to look at the first one today. And so I want to invite you to come with me to the wedding. I want to invite you to taste the wine. I want to invite you to be a witness. And I want to invite you to live the week, the very first week of Jesus' ministry with me. So let's look at the text together. First, to the wedding. Imagine Nathaniel's reaction when Jesus says that you will see even greater things than these. You will see heaven open. Nathaniel was the one who thought little could come from the town of Nazareth. Nathaniel was the one who grew up in Cana. This is his hometown. And perhaps Jesus is invited to this wedding because of his, his new association with Nathaniel. We don't know. But for Nathaniel to, to grow up in Cana would kind of be like... Um, Nathaniel growing up in Collinsville and Jesus growing up in Owasso like 30 years ago when it was a one-stoplight town. What could come out of Owasso? And here, this big wedding is nine miles north of Nazareth. It was in Cana of Galilee. And so it's kind of like all of us walking nine miles to go to Collinsville to go to the big city to go to a wedding. And here we are. Cana was the place where Nathaniel grew up. Cana was also the place where the Jewish historian Josephus grew up or at least he lived at a later time after this event occurred. 
And some liberal scholars will say that this wedding was actually Jesus' wedding. And to that, I simply want to say, that's crazy. A lot of people think that, actually. And I just want to tell you that that's crazy. Because look, people say, well, um, if Mary had such a primary role in the wedding, it would only make sense that it was Jesus' wedding. Are you kidding me? I mean, first of all, the text says, and Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And secondly, if Jesus had been a modern Westerner, then maybe his mother's role would have thought, huh, maybe Jesus has a more important role to play in the wedding than we might think. But have you ever been to an ancient Near Near Eastern wedding or a Far Eastern wedding? I mean, oh my gosh, if they ran out of wine at a Near Eastern or Far Eastern wedding, every mother there would have grabbed the most powerful kin closest to her and said, have mercy on this couple. Please help provide for them because to run out of wine in in an Eastern or an ancient Near Eastern wedding would have been equivalent to social ostracization the entire wedding. It would have been like an omen of bad luck upon this couple. And so it's interesting, isn't it, that Mary... I'm sure not alone with the women in the, in the, at the wedding who were anxious for this couple who had run out of wine, turns to Jesus and says, would you please help them? And it's interesting, isn't it, that Mary turns to Jesus. She doesn't turn to Joseph. Why? I wish we knew. Maybe it's because Joseph had already passed away by this time and Jesus was the next most powerful um, in kin to her or he was the sense where she ran for solace and for comfort because her husband had died. The text doesn't tell us, but Jesus had been invited by his friends, or with his friends, to a wedding. And at the wedding, the wine runs out. If such a travesty ever happened in real life, everybody there would have run to help rescue the couple because the weddings in the ancient Near East were provided by the groom, and it was a sign of the groom's um, rite of passage into matrimony. He provided all of the means, not as we in the West have the bride's family provide for the wedding, but it was the groom who himself provided the funds for the wedding and fed the family. And the weddings there lasted all week, and each day new guests arrived. You didn't have one wedding list where everybody came to one event. People came serially. They each different people came all throughout the week. Maidens were married on Wednesday in the ancient Near East, and widows were, if they were remarried, they were married on Thursday. And it, it, it lasted an entire week. It was a huge celebration. And in a place like Cana, it would have been a community affair. It would have been a total ordeal. As much as one half worth would have been provided to him, whom is embarrassed by running out of food or wine, he risks far more than just his social name. He risks his own livelihood because so much was provided for them at their wedding. And so you can feel while Mary is like anxious for this couple. And if you were to walk with me into the wedding, we'd pass through the court of that house in Cana and we would reach the covered gallery which opens up to various rooms. Weddings were often held in um, larger homes in the town. In the reception gallery, there would be servants milling about and there would be the water pots where they would be arranged after the manner of the Jews, as the text says, for purification, for the washing not only of their hands but also of of their vessels. And purification 
was one of the main points of rabbinic law. And by far the largest and the most elaborate section of the Mishnah, which is the Old Testament Oral Testament for Jews. The largest section is exclusively devoted to the purification. It's called the Seder Tohoroth, or the purifications. And not counting other parts of the Talmud, but you have two parts of the Mishnah called tractates to instruct the Jews about the purification of the hands, the Yadayim, and of the vessels. If you were a Jew in that you would be acutely aware of the importance of these stone jars that were there outside of the main banqueting room of the wedding where you would wash so that you were ceremonially clean. And reading this area, part of the Mishnah will help you understand how strategic Jesus was being with his first miracle because he strikes right at the heart of the Jewish religious tradition that became such an obstacle to their faith in believing that he was their Messiah. One scholar writes that in this miracle, Christ denounces the gross hypocrisy of the elaborate ordinance of Jewish vessel cleansing. It was actually vaunted among the Sanhedrin that if you want a seat on the Sanhedrin, you had to memorize this part of the Mishnah. You had to know it so well that you knew how to clean creepy, crawly things, which we know in the Old Testament is not even possible. But they wanted to make a point. And so here, Jesus, it might be like Jesus were to perform his first miracle on a Friday night at Owasso High School football stadium. Like Jesus goes right to the center of the cultural traditions of his day to perform his first miracle. And we enter the spacious lobby, this lofty dining room, and it would be brightly lit with lamps and candlesticks, and the, the guests would be lying on couches or supporting themselves with cushions or seated perhaps on chairs. And the bridal blessing would have been spoken, and the bridal cup would have been emptied, and the festive evening would have begun. The meal is proceeding, and we are invited to the wedding. Are you there? Do you see it? Can you imagine it? And now we need to taste the wine. The silence in the room would have been palpable when they realized that there was no more wine. mother of Jesus whispers to him, the wine has failed. And Westerners undoubtedly would never, we would never consider our dressing our mothers with woman. But in the ancient Near East, this was a much more tender-hearted way of addressing Mary. The fact that he says woman and not mother may in some ways denote a transition from Jesus's um, uh, into Jesus' public ministry. But it's a tender word. It doesn't read as hard as it does in English. It's saying, ma'am, I know this is concerning to you, but it doesn't concern me. That's the way it would have sounded in Jesus' day. And Jesus calls Mary um, and says, I know this is a big deal to you, but my hour has not yet come. And we don't see Mary again until John's gospel, until when? She's at, the, she's at the foot of the cross. And again, at the foot of the cross, how does Jesus address his mother? He says, 
woman, again to her, is a tender word. It wasn't a word that comes across as hard and as harsh as it does to English and Western ears. In Jesus' own time and way, Jesus was going to be able to demonstrate his power, and he just, quite frankly, didn't want his mother to control when he did that. A familiar theme, even today, right? And Jesus' obedience to his heavenly Father was more important than his obedience to his earthly mother. And Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And this refers to the time, the special time in Jesus' life when he was to leave this world and return to his Father. We see this later in chapter 13. The hour when the Son of Man was to be glorified in chapter 17. And that hour was accomplished in his suffering and in his death. When Jesus' hour finally did come, he met the need of the entire human race by dying on the cross. And here he says, oh, my hour has not yet come. But I'll give them a glimpse. Jews washed before eating to cleanse themselves from the defilement of contact with Gentiles, which undoubtedly were probably at the wedding too. And so you can imagine these big stone jars were there, almost kind of a social in-your-face of the Gentiles who may have been there at the wedding. They needed a lot of water since they um, washed often. Each pot, each of these six stone jars held between 108 and 140 gallons of liquid. Stone pots did not absorb the uncleanness as earthenware vessels might have done, uh, done so. So they used stone as water containers because they were more sanitary. And perhaps Jesus ordered the pots to be filled to the brim simply so that there would be enough wine for the entire wedding. Or maybe Jesus had them filled to the brim so that nobody would know that Jesus had created a magic act and somehow poured wine into the top. Jesus is no magician. He is the Lord of the universe. And filled to the brim, they would have provided 2,400 cups of wine for people at that wedding. One, one scholar Alexander Pope described this miracle this way. He said, The conscious water saw its master and blushed. We might say that the water contacted the skin of Jesus and blushed into rosé. And verse 8 says that they drank freely and when they had had too much to drink. We like to imagine that this meant that, that people weren't drunk at the wedding, but the Greek makes no mistake about it. The Greek assumes that people at these weddings, sinful though being drunk is, would regularly and customarily be drunk. And that is the time, as the head waiter alludes, when people bring out the worst wine. Once people have had their fill and aren't really seen straight, perhaps, or whatever um, you know, is going on, they, they then would drink the, the bad wine. And, and here, they have the best wine that he saves for last. And the miracle here is that something contradicts the law of nature. Water cannot become wine. And the definition of a miracle is that the laws of nature are upended or stopped to make a point. In the Old Testament times, abundance of wine or of milk or of honey were signs of the age of fulfillment. And certainly that would be the case here at this wedding. Jeremiah 31 or Joel 3 or, or Amos chapter 9. Um, there are lots of different examples or, or um, uh, 
Jeremiah 31.12 says, They shall come and sing aloud on the heights of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain and the wine and the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. All throughout the Old Testament, these signs of the fulfillment of the covenant of the kingdom coming with the abundance of new wine, milk, honey. And Jesus here calls us to the wedding. And he calls us to taste this wine. And he calls us to become a witness. Look at verse 11. Why did Jesus perform the first of these signs? This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. First, to manifest his glory. And second, so that the disciples would believe in him. Jesus' conversion of such a large quantity of water would have undoubtedly signaled to the Jews that the long-awaited kingdom of the Messiah has come. But so offended were they that he messed up their purification system that they did not believe, as John would go on to show us throughout his gospel. And Jesus did it so that the first five of the disciples that he had called, Andrew, the unnamed disciple, Peter, Philip and Nathaniel, so that they would believe and they would understand themselves to be the new Israel called to extend the good news of the gospel to the world, as we looked at last week. Jesus did this for them. And the wedding is a foretaste of the great heavenly banquet in store for not only the disciples, but for each of us. It would have been a way for God to, rec- uh, to symbolize the, his relationship with Israel, all those who place their faith in him. would be a foretaste of the great wedding banquet that is to come when Jesus, the groom, comes and sweeps away his bride, the church, to enjoy him forever. And we are called to live into this week. Notice what the first part of this text says. It says that on the third day, the third day after Nathaniel met Jesus, it's really it's uncommon, hear me, for John to talk about like days of the week like he does in chapters 1 and 2. But the first day is the day when um, John the Baptist gave his veiled witness to Jesus. The second day was when John the Baptist gave his open witness to Jesus. The third day, John calls his first two disciples. The fourth day, God calls Nathaniel and Philip to follow him. And then, after three days, in other words, the conclusion of the first week of his ministry... Jesus conducts this miracle. And John's account of this first week of Jesus' ministry is trying to highlight that Jesus is the business of taking old things and making them new. Here he takes water and he makes it into wine. And before we get to the second sign in chapter 4, he takes a dirty temple and he cleanses it, as we'll see next week. Then in chapter 3, he takes a new birth and um, replaces it uh, an old birth and replaces it with a new birth. And then in chapter 4, the woman at the well, he, he takes living water and replaces the well water with living water that he gives to them. He's constantly telling us he's making all things new, as Marcia read in Revelation 21 earlier. And here at Cana, Jesus lengthens the joy of the bride and groom by providing wine. It's interesting. Here's Jesus, friends, at a, at a wedding feast. 
And he's not embarrassed that they're drinking wine. He's providing 2,400 more cups of it. And he knows it's going to be abused. He knows that it's customary for people to be drunk at weddings. But isn't it interesting that Jesus, he, he says, listen, just because people are going to abuse God's good, good gifts doesn't mean that we shouldn't celebrate. Albeit we do it in a way that honors the Lord. And Jesus, by the way, is no um, uh, recluse. I mean, Jesus is as social perhaps as you and I are when we go to weddings. He, he's actively involved in the social system. And he shows us that a Christ-like character can be one filled with joy because he's there celebrating with this new bride and groom. And he's doing so as a way to, he's stretching the joy of the bride and groom. We don't know if he brought gifts along with the other guests, but certainly this was an amazing gift, wasn't it? The Westminster Confession of Faith, which Nathan mentioned earlier in our own Confession of Faith, the first question says, what is our chief end? Why do we exist? We exist to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And Jesus begins His ministry by commanding servants to take water that becomes wine. And on the night that He was betrayed before His death, He commands His servants to take wine which becomes a symbol of his blood. And he himself is the vessel that is filled with the brim. The one who is able to cover all of our sins. The one who's filled to the brim so that God's wrath would fall completely on him for us, so that it would not land on us. If we are to see him as the one who bridges heaven and earth, if we are to believe in him, if we are to see Christ as the one who breaks down all the purification rules that the Jews set up in the ancient Near East and that we set up in 2019 for ways that we try to jockey position with regards to the Lord. And Jesus says, no, I am your provision and I and I alone will lengthen your joy through the blood of my sacrifice. And one day you too will be part of the wedding of joy. Jonathan Edwards put it like this. She, the church, shall then be brought to the entertainments of an eternal wedding feast. And so dwell forever with her bridegroom. Yea, to dwell eternally in his embraces. Then Christ will give her his loves and she shall drink her fill. Yea, she shall swim and the oceans of his love. And the most famous picture, perhaps, of this wedding of Canaan was done 400 years ago. And at this wedding, Jesus strikes at the heart of the religious establishment by taking their sacred purification vessels and turning them into wine, the new wine of his presence. To signify to us that you do not have to clean yourself up to be near to God. In fact, you need to stop washing your hands. And you need to fall on your knees at the cross and say, Lord Christ, give me your fill. The blood of the sacrifice, the wedding of joy. You're saved by grace through faith. Do you want to go to the wedding? Don't you want to taste that wine? Don't you want to be a witness? Don't you want to live the week of Christ's coming to remake all of the world through your life? We can.
And we ought to follow Mary's advice. The early church said that the kernel of the power of the command in this passage comes from the mouth of Mary, who looks at the servants after hearing from Jesus and says to them, do whatever he tells you. Not bad advice, huh? And we are called as those who are part of the wedding feast to do whatever Christ tells us, however hard it may seem, with whatever sacrifice it may seem, and whatever challenge it may be to our own agenda, to stop washing ourselves with our accolades and to lay ourselves at the foot of the cross and say, Christ, only you alone can fill me to the brim. And would you do it? Sign, sign everywhere, sign. Blocking out the scenery, breaking my mind. Do this, don't do that. Can't you read the signs? Your Savior's near. He wants to extend your joy. Come to the wedding. Taste the wine. Be a witness. And live that week in light of his presence and his majesty. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to know that you came to extend our joy, not to take it away. And you plan to extend our joy by challenging us in the most intimate areas of our hearts, by attacking the religious systems that we have used to avail ourselves to you. And Father, would you help us to know that our chief identity is rooted in what you have done for us. And would you help all those here who don't yet believe in you to see the good news that you lived the perfect life for us and died in our place on the cross so that we could have an eternal celebration with you. And for those of us who do believe, Lord, would you strengthen us to check our hearts and to find that you are far more beautiful and believable than when we first believed and to run to you in joy to this wedding banquet of your table. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.